पंद्रह सेकंड में मैं क्या कर सकता हूँ बैंक ऑफ बड़ोडा के एम कनेक्ट प्लस ऐप से बिजली का बिल भर सकता हूँ बैंक ऑफ बड़ोडा भारत का अंतर्राष्ट्रीय बैंक वेलकम टू जयपुर बाइट्स द जे एल एफ पॉडकास्ट आई एम योर होस्ट लक्ष दाता आई एम हियर एट दी जयपुर लिटरेचर फेस्टिवल ट्वेंटी ट्वेंटी पैलेस एंड वॉट यूर अबाउट टू हियर इन दिस एपिसोड इज अ रिकॉर्डिंग ऑफ अ लाइव सेशन दैट जस्ट है Here it is. There is um whatever you like to call it whether you want to call it cultural nationalism whether you want to call it right wing ideology uh whether you want to call it hindutva but there has been an uh, idea of india for a very 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 long time that is deeply rooted in its social traditions and uh, in hindu culture uh shapunda has written a wonderful book largely of primary sources talking about that that you know basically it it carries essays and it carries writings uh for de- from decades ago about what this idea really means what it stands for what it encapsulates there are larger questions however on how this idea fits in with cultural nationalism whether they can coexist together and how of course this has this idea has changed in uh, the decades gone by has it changed perceptibly or not so these are some of the broader questions that we are going to be talking about this morning and i'm going to start with uh, shopunda who's uh, compiled this wonderful book and uh, straight off the bat you know there's a shopunda we keep hearing this that uh, there are no right wing intellectuals and this is something that keeps coming up time and again was this book in any way a sort of response to that i'm sure it's a lot more but was it was that also one of the reasons why you decided to compile it well uh, frankly yes uh, a, a very dear friend of mine who is in college with me ram guha used to always berate us and we say that there is no there's nothing called an intellectual tradition of the right and of course what ram was saying was not necessarily original because throughout the world anything which is vaguely to the so called right of the political spectrum is always regarded as the stupid party and it's a caricature which has been uh, carefully cultivated in some of our liberal universities here you know a, a certain stereotype of people you know oh so a lot of people come and say oh you can sp- i re- remember a panel discussion where a very distinguished member of the congress ecosystem said oh you speak rather good english don't you i mean you, you know you're supposed to have a big tilak and go to the bhagwati jagran uh, and uh, and that sort of enormous condescension which greets people and i think we see that all over uh, is is necessarily a part of life but that certainly was one of the considerations perhaps the more trivial consideration but i think what is more important is to uh, was to demonstrate that an idea 
which some people regard as very kitschy, as something straight out of calendar art, actually has a very important pedigree, a very important pedig uh, intellectual pedigree, which is located in our national movement. I mean, if I might take a, uh, a minute or so, I mean, today is Republic Day. And these days, it's become fashionable for some people to sort of say, oh, we believe in the preamble of the Indian Constitution and see that as the sort of be all and end all as the defining characteristic of being Indian. And I think that's a very important point because the Constitution is a very important document which tells us the rules of the game, how public life should be conducted, etc. But, and I think this is very important to note, that our sense of nationhood didn't begin the day the Constitution was signed on 26th January 1950. Our sense of nationhood goes back much earlier. And then there is a long pre-Constitution history, a pre-Constitution heritage, which sometimes we choose to forget that our nationhood goes back. And I think it's in that context that I, my book uh, plays a role and why I've chosen Bharat Mata as being the iconic definition of the whole thing. Rabanda, uh, I want to come back to this point of, uh, you know, the constitution being the be all and the end all of a certain kind of nationalism and I'm going to bring in other speakers into that. But before I do that, two questions. One is that um, I'm, I, I'm curious to know that when you were compiling this book, how did you go about defining what is Indian right? So the first question there is what your relationship with that term is like? Do you think there is an Indian right wing, so to say? Or is that too much of a borrowed concept from the West? The second question is, how did you go about making this selection? Because it's a very, very interesting selection. It's a wonderful book, like I've said before. But also, I was intrigued by the selection. So for example, you have a Vajpayee, you have a Savarkar, but you also have a Patel. Now, um, and the way, you know, when you start reading the ideas that are sort of encapsulated in the, the uh, uh, you know, the themes that recur, one could even perhaps get a passage out of Discovery of India, and it wouldn't be out of place in this, in, in this compilation. So I was just wondering how you went about that selection and what your relationship is with that phrase, Indian right. Yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, the term, I'm not particularly happy with the term Indian right because it's certainly not a term I would personally like to use, but it was a term which was thrust on me by the publishers partly because it's a very convenient shorthand in trying to define what it's all about. For the, so it's more uh, a publishing shorthand and an uh, 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 oversimplified version of trying to look, look at what it's all about. So right, left has its own little problems. It has its certain sense in the West, but in India, uh, it's far more problematic, you know, because I think the lines are far more... But it's not entirely a happy definition, but people get a sense of what how it's used in a popular parlance. Now, the uh, question of the selection of this. Now, the, I, I personally selected things which have really faded from public memory. I hadn't really chosen those which are more prominent and which are known, um, which are available. For instance, the speech of Bajpai. Now, you see, you have a 
wonderful, uh, again, a popular stereotype of at good Atalji, bad Advani ji, which used to be there about 20 years ago. Huh. So, I mean, I've, I've sort of been confronted, uh, I've been uh, uh, familiar with uh, Mr. Bajpai for a very, very long time. And so I particularly brought in a speech of his on the Bhiwani riots in 1969-70, which he delivered in the Lok Sabha, which, as a, uh, which had a deep impression in the 1970s. So likewise, I brought in a person called Ramanand Chatterjee. Now, Ramanand Chatterjee, there was a collection of Ramanand Chatterjee which was brought out. He was an editor. He was a very close associate of Rabindranath Tagore. And there was a, a collection of Ramanand Chatterjee as editor of Modern Review, which, which people brought out. And it was a wonderfully sanitized version of showing this, this man as an iconic figure of liberalism. What I really wanted to point out was that Ramanand Chatterjee, for all his other things, was also the president of the Hindu Mahasabha, the national president of the Hindu Mahasabha. And I gave a speech of Ramanand Chatterjee, I said, which is more a corrective. Likewise, there's a, speech, uh, there's a passage from Sir Jadunath Sarkar. Now, Jadunath Sarkar has been more or less been excised from the history books. You can, you know, he, he's thought of as some sort of an ancient fuddy-duddy. Um, but he was certainly one of the pioneers in the study of Mughal India and also the Marathas. And it's lately now people are rediscovering him. So again, that. And finally, may I say so that Swami Vivekananda has often been portrayed in recent days as some sort of a wonderful, iconic, global Hindu guru who would sell very well in California. You have these sort of gurus which are there. But there was a certain context to Vivekananda. And that Vivekanan spirit of nationalism, which I, I mean, Makran would be the best, he's just written an entire book. Along with it, Nivedita, who took Vivekanan's ideals to a little further using her sort of Irish feistiness uh, to good effect. So it, it basically combines all these things. But broadly speaking, I wanted to bring out certain uh, tracts which for reasons willful or otherwise, seems to have been buried under the carpet. But they are very much a part of our inheritance. So two more questions on the book, particularly before we move on to a larger debate and I you know, involve all of you. Um, I want to ask you, you know, just I don't know how many people here have had a chance to go through the book or read the book. Could I have a show of hands? Has anyone read the book yet? Okay, not enough people. So what, what I might do is, you know, Makran, you and Shapunda uh, and Saba, you've read the book as well. Uh, perhaps starting with you, Makran. Could you just take our audience through some of the recurring ideas and themes in this book that, um, that sort of encapsulate the sort of nationalism that Shapunda wishes to illustrate with this book? Uh, thank you. First of all, one of the words that occurs in the introduction, it's a very fine introduction, quite lengthy and detailed. It's a good analysis of this entire discursive tradition, which has been sidelined completely. And I think Shabanda uses a wonderful quotation from another common friend of ours, um, Pratap Bhanu Mehta, who called the Modi era the age of cretinism. And uh, so this is... Uh, there is a certain kind of uh, dismissal of the entire discursive tradition that constitutes, for lack of better words, 
uh, an Indian conservative tradition. So I'm throwing out that word. You've talked about right-wing and cultural nationalism. But let's, let's use that word conservative, you know, and let's use uh, Britain, the intellectual ideas that came to us from there as a point of reference. And to quote Burke, see, Burke says something very important. Burke talks about an ancient constitution which is unwritten. You spoke about the modern constitution, uh, you know, signed off on the 26th of January 1950. But most of human knowledge is not actually written down. It's simply passed down from generation to generation. And it consists of, you know, as somebody called it, unreflective but deeply felt values of the normal citizen. And as Scranton says, ordinary prohibitions and decencies. Now, uh, what, are, what is the spirit? See, so to be a conservative is not a set of dogmas, but it is a spirit. And it is a spirit that highlights continuity and unity over other aspects, right? And it seems to me that there's been a clash of constitutions in India, so to speak, a complete dismissal of an entire way of looking you know, at India and at ourselves. And I think what Shopunda has succeeded in doing is highlighting this tradition, you know. And I'll just, you know, we talked about the, uh, you know, the, the uh, things which we have forgotten, you know, excellent, uh, you know, statements and speeches and writings in their own context, which we've completely forgotten. Let me read you one, and let me see who can recognize the, the author. Aggressive Hinduism. We ought to make our faith aggressive, not only internationally by sending out missionaries, but also socially by self-improvement, not only doctrinally by accepting converts, but spiritually by intensifying its activity. Can anybody guess who this is? It's not Savarkar. It's not Vivekananda. It's Sister close. Nivedita. Very close. It's Sister Nivedita. So this is the point. We have forgotten a whole slew of these speeches and writings, starting with Bankim, you know, and the idea of Vande Matram, uh, which was a Congress slogan, by the way. So I think to answer your question, this book is really important because it's uh, a set of documents that we are invited to read today so that this condescension and this dismissal of a whole discursive tradition can be countered by actual texts that we have available. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I want to pick up on something that you just said that, you know, Vande Mataram being the um, as the slogan for Congress. And I was wondering that, you know, the kind of silos that seem to exist between um, a conservative tradition, cultural nationalism, nationalism, whatever you wish to call it, and, and a, a more left liberal understanding of the idea of India. Did it, I mean, to my mind, and I might be looking at it with rose-tinted glasses perhaps, that to my mind, that kind of uh, definitive line, border, uh, between these two ideas didn't exist for a very long time. So you mentioned uh, Bande Mataram. He earlier mentioned Modern Review. And of course, Nehru used to write for Modern Review and didn't uh, seem to have a problem with the fact that its editor was the president of Hindu Mahasabha and clearly was reading Ramanand as well and knew that they differ on very, uh, very crucial points. Is that something, is that also, was that a tradition also alive for a long time? Or is that just something that 
you know, one is imagining from, from this vantage point? Yes, I, I think that there's been a panic leading up to the 2014 elections when finally it seemed as if these group of people whom, you know, call them what you will, you know, Lutyens Delhi, Khan Market Gang, whatever it is, call them what you will, felt that at last we're going to lose India. The idea of India is going to be destroyed because these uh, bunch of rampant Hindu nationalists, or so call, call them what you will, are going to overrun, you know, India. And that panic set off a certain reaction where that middle ground, as you said, Nehru, you know, would write for Modern Review and would talk to, you know, all these people. There's a huge correspondence between Shama Prasad Mukherjee and Nehru also on Kashmir. So that sort of dialogic and uh, you might say that tradition of speaking to each other, listening to each other's stories, to go back to the theme of this GLF, was completely thrown out the window, I think, in face of the possibility of, you know, Nehru, um, you know, not Nehru, not, you know, that Nehruvian consensus finally eroding and Modi becoming Bharat's Hriday Samrat, so to speak, you know. So that set off a panic. But I think there's a wonderful essay here by Girilal Jain where he talks about the two impulses of Indian nationalism, which was self-renewal and modernization. And in a sense, what happened in the Nehruvian era was that though modernization, development, you know, that agenda was in some ways highlighted, though through the Soviet model of five-year plans and, you know, centralized bureaucratic uh, planning and, the, and an economy of command and control, that other uh, thrust of self-renewal was forgotten. And I think what happens uh, if you look at, uh, you know, how Shopanda has constructed his introduction uh, showing the rise of BJP as India's dominant power, you know, 303 seats and so forth, I think the Im implication, though he doesn't spell it out, is that once again these two have come together, self-renewal combined with modernization, vikas and so forth. And I think that this is something quite new for us in India after a long interregnum where, uh, you know, these two, should I say, imperatives of nation building you know, were divorced from one another. And all attempts at self-renewal, especially Hindu self-renewal, was were seen as communal, murderous, or whatever bad words you could think of for them. And I think this book shows that uh, these twin impulses coexisted throughout our time, and they've just come together today. Now, there is, of course, the ideological battleground, you know, that we occupy in one fashion or the other. But I don't think the book is, 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 uh, is addressed uh, to that kind of contentious space. I think it's a far more important and profound testament to a discursive tradition, and it's going to last a much longer time. So I don't want to get into that pugilism and polemics because that's so reductive. You know, I want to bring you in, Sabha, and uh uh, sort of take the bull by the horns. You know, uh, Shapanda was talking about uh, constitution, and again, today is Republic Day. Obviously, that's that's what we're uh, celebrating today. And he talks about this idea of India existing, and of course, there's no doubting that uh, before, way before the constitution was even conceived of. But there is a question to be answered today. 
can this cultural nationalism coexist with constitutional nationalism, particularly given the content of our constitution? Uh, thank you, Pragya. Thank you, Chopin. Now, first of all, it's Republic Day. So I'm so happy to be sitting with Chopin, who, without him, without his help, I would never have begun the journey of covering the Bharatiya Janata Party. Now, he was the greatest editor to work under. I'm very, very fond of this gentleman, even though we disagree entirely. And so it's a, it's a complete, uh, you know, this is what India is about on Republic Day. Here I am with completely polar opposite views, we'll argue, but we are engaging with each other. It's also very important to engage with ideas of what we can call the Hindu right because we have not understood what has happened. We are all trying to make sense for, for the whatever, Makaran can put 100 labels on it, but people, it is important to understand that there is a strand in India. The problem here is, uh, Chopin has always been a beautiful writer. I've seen him churn out a piece like that within an hour, you know, on anything. When he, that is when he was a full-time journalist. Now he's a full-time politician. So he used to just churn it out. I mean, he writes occasionally, and he provokes people occasionally. But he, is, he was a specially talented writer, having been a subaltern historian. He can also pick out bits of history. And he was a complete gentleman, even if you disagreed with him. And that is the quality we need to find again on Republic Day. So I'm absolutely del delighted. Chopin, to be sitting here with you and your lovely book with the lovely cover and talking about this. Now, the problem that I have basically is this, that uh, does, it, uh, does all those articles that you put in there, and you've got a lovely introduction, uh, and Chopin has this technique of using English words, like he will say robust nationalism, and then he will talk about certain attacks uh, which have happened during the era Modi and the sort of, and he will call it boisterous fringe elements. So he will use these delicious little words, robust nationalism and boisterous elements. So he does that. And then, but the issue is Chopin, do the ideas of Sister Nivedita, do the ideas of, uh, there are a whole lot of people who actually write without mentioning Muslims at all. Even Bankim Chandra, this is, I think the, it's after 1920, after the Khilafat movement, that uh, you have more mention of Muslims. What you have, does it actually, is it a continuing stream to what appears to be happening right now, which is almost an obsession with sort of the Muslim? Is there anything more to it beyond uh, creating an identity beyond the Muslim? That's number one. A question that I have, if you'd kindly allow me, yeah. Pragya. Number one, that's that, and that's, I'm asking you not in a combative way, I'm trying to understand myself. Secondly, I do believe that you should have another version of the book, and you need to include Deendayal Upadhyay. You have to, because the BGP doesn't do anything without mentioning Deendayal Upadhyay. You have missed out Golwakar and Hegdewar. I suspect it's because the standard of their work does not meet your intellectual standards. That's my wicked theory, but that's what I, you know, so just a couple of wicked points to you, Chopin, in the spirit of old camaraderie. And I'm very proud of you and your wonderful book. So actually, she's touched upon two things that I intended to, uh, as, as Makran would know, intended to touch upon later as well. 
um, uh, it is kind of, uh, uh, it is intriguing that uh, we'll come back to the obsession with Muslims point later. Can I just address that one question? Because that's, I think I feel like it's a larger debate. I can yeah. get into it right now, but let's just, I mean, uh, one quick question because it's more, it's pertinent to the book in terms of, because it's still based still on selection and how you compile the book. It, the absence of anyone from RSS, whether it's Hedgevar or whether maybe Thengadi would have been a, 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 a good person or Golwalkar is, is, quite, is quite noticeable. Is, was there any particular reason why you didn't uh, include anyone from the RSS? Other than Vajpayee Ji, of course. Well, uh, firstly, l let me thank Sabha for the glowing testimonials, you know. Don't uh, be annoyed, Chopper. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we can have a bantering session. I'm telling you, it'll be more entertaining than a serious. Chopin and I bantering, but okay. He's become a serious politician. I think one, there's a very simple reason. I particularly included texts which have, for different reasons, become inaccessible. It's not that I don't mention Deendayal Upadhyay or Golwalkar or others in my introduction. But these are texts which are very easily available. Not Thengadi and not Hedgevar, actually. Dattopant Thengri has a very sectional appeal. He spent most of his life in the Bharatiya Mazdoor Sangh. And he had a view which, you know, it's, it's, it has a view of the relationship between labor and capital, which wasn't quite central to this uh, theme of this book. So uh, th that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't. And but his books are now available online for free download, by the way. They're all in English. Yeah, but all uh, of his books online. Uh, but uh, the larger question which Saba asked, you know, of the sort of disappearing Muslim. <laughs> Obsession with anything to do with Muslim. Is there a Hindu identity beyond trying to uh, trash the Muslim you know, without that it always up helps. there? It know? always helps to look at India beyond yesterday's newspapers. And one of the things which you might find is that throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, there was one central question which preoccupied the minds of the entire leadership, whether they call themselves liberal, whether they call themselves more traditional, whatever. And that was the question is, why did India lose sovereignty? And that was the central question which they, are, which they were preoccupied with. And they had different answers to this. Now the question is, when did they lose sovereignty? One was that. Did they lose sovereignty in 1757, as some people would say, or did they lose sovereignty much earlier? Most, most people would say that we lost sovereignty much earlier. Now, the question is, what is the basis of this renewal? Why did we lose it? Was it because we were technologically inadequate, as some people would argue? But more important was the question, and here, which is something which unites someone from Vivekanand to Bhandarkar, you know, the, the entire range, is that India lacked what is called a corporate spirit, a sense of national unity. That was the basic point which they were going on harping about it. And they elaborated. And how do we re regain this national unity? Then comes this question. And what are the impediments in, in its path? Now, 
it happened that there were certain strands of Muslim thinking at that point, which harked back to the revival of the Mughal Empire, a sense of wonderful nostalgia, which you still find uh, in, if you go to Hyderabad, for instance, and see the speeches of uh, Mr. Oasis thing, you'll find that creeping in all the time, whether it's the dress or whether it's there. It's that sense of thing, a lost empire. We were the natural rulers of India and we lost it. You yeah, you're talking about the elites. Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about the elite. Normally uh, the elite yeah, plays yeah. a very important role whether in the creation of Pakistan or whether in the creation of whatever bug is now going on in Delhi. Uh, <laughs> bug, Shaheen bug. Come with me. I'll take you there. Special <laughs> guest. So, can, so I, can uh, I get in here? I just want Shine to say. I want to answer question. the same thing for in, a, in a second, in one second. Uh, okay, sure. I'll just second. add one thing, Shopan. The other problem is, and I'm asking, this is an honest question is it just the Calcutta presidency and Bombay presidency which produces this Hindu awakening? Is it nowhere else? That, that's, you know. You see, I want to respond to this very briefly that if you think that cultural nationalism is only a Muslim obsession or an obsession with Muslims, then this book completely refutes that. None of these writers in but the... That's what I was saying. Yeah, I so... Was saying, but I'm saying what's happening now? Well, what's happening yeah, now is somebody now. is using fora like the Shaheen Bagh to ask for another partition of India. They're going to... Oh. See, they're, they're written, you know? Oh. They, Come there, I'll take you there. Okay, no, no. Listen, come, Makran, come, we'll read Makran, the preamble together. There is a, I'll take you, there is Why a don't you video come? by a man called Mr. Imam. No, 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 you can't go by one video. Listen, but Yogi Adityanath has sat on block, stage. They want to block I'm Assam sorry? and the Northeast. You read, you Can see I, the uh, now, you see it. So this, this is becoming to, like okay, the Republic okay, TV this, show. No, this, but to answer your question, I'll, I'll answer there's no, there's no Bef Muslim obsession no, in this no, book. I will, okay? Before no, this you, debate no, becomes about like Shaheen Bagh, just no, because, one second. No, I want to make yeah. a point here. This is important because you have had the BJP chief minister, they sit on a platform where you have riot accused. You have men who have said that women's graves should be dug up and they should be raped. And you are taking one video since yesterday over, and you're insulting women. So I will say that to you. Come there. Have the guts to step out of your university and come to Shaheen Bagh. But let's get back to the book. But Don't just say, it's not even very far. You it's not down the ages. You, it's here, you, it's next You are door. changing the goalposts. I only talked about the partition of India. That's all. No, I, I'm okay, okay. I was having I am, a very civilized discussion with Chopin on his very back. lovely I'm book. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm huh? taking this debate back. I was, I was before we sure, and I'll come to your point, Saba. Before we talk about the modern article, uh, modern articulation. I want articulation. to get back to Chopin's book. And yeah, the, that's exactly what we're Bombay doing. Bombay and Calcutta before, president. Before, sorry, sorry, Chopin. I'll, 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 I'm just saying that before we come back to the, I think there is an important question in there about the modern articulation of a lot of the ideas encapsulated in that book and if something is lacking in those modern, uh, in that modern articulation. But before we go to that, there is another important point that I don't want to miss out, which is where is caste in all of this? And I say this uh, with complete, you know, when you read the kind, the most of the people who, are, who have written these essays come from the higher caste, and I say this uh, recognizing the irony that all three of us also belong to higher, uh, uh, higher caste in terms of your high caste uh, uh, people discussing, having this discussion. But in this idea of India, where did caste figure? And did it figure enough? There is an essay by Sri Aurobindo here on caste. And except, except for 
the Swami Narayans in their Shiksha Patri, who endorse a traditional notion of Varnashram, Dharma, almost every single Hindu social, intellectual, and spiritual figure in modern India has denounced caste. From Dayanand Saraswati to Gandhi to Shorabindo, and one of the biggest denouncers of caste was Savarkar, even if you don't want to yeah, believe it or like it. May I just also yes. ad address the very important question which Sabha posed about whether there is a, what might be called a presidency bias in this. Did it emanate from, let's say, the Marathi and the Bengali-speaking regions of India? Yes, I think that's true partly because the exposure to British rule was more marked there. And I think it's, it, it's quite interesting to look at the sheer ambivalence of the responses to British rule at one time. At one level, there was a certain degree of visceral political hatred towards British rule. But it was combined with a very deep sense of appreciation, not necessarily of Western civilization alone. I mean, that existed yeah. in some parts, like right. sort of uh, pe people like uh, Ramon Roy at time even tried to mold the Hindu thing into a sort of monotheistic way. That, that, that was one yeah, extreme, yeah. but most of them didn't. Right. For them, it may meant that the important thing to learn from Britain was this sense of solidarity, which mm. they got. Mm. And that sense of solidarity was mm. very, very important in trying to shape this nationalism. Mm. So it's, it's important. Yeah. Whereas in the rest of the country, I mean, in, in uh, certain parts of northern India, I think you had more traditional responses mm. to this question, where Such these questions were not taken up in exactly the... So if you look, look at modern Hindu nationalism, right. which I would say actually traces its lineage from Shivaji onwards, Okay. as opposed to other things, mm -hmm. then okay. you have that. And I think you're quite right to say that there are different strands. And it's important to historically try and map these different strands whatsoever. Yeah. But the Muslim question, if at all was the... If you view the Muslim question as the question of sovereignty, then you're absolutely right. But the question was of sovereignty, oh. not of Muslims. No, I was just no, noting. I mean, it's like Amartya Sen, Amartya Sen in the, saying yeah. in his uh, wonderful book on the argumentative Indian that Akbar gave my conferred minority rights. I mean, minority rights for eighty percent of the population. I mean, if there was a, I mean, this is exactly. So this is the whole point about it. No, no. I that if you if you're talking about I, elites, I was actually if I you're talking something. about elites. Yeah. This notion of the elite, which was born, was very much something which had to do with India's loss of sovereignty. Very much. So it was seen in that sort of way. Maybe what you could say is that there was a certain cultural mismatch which existed in Bengal in particular between a Hindu newly class, educated middle, middle class, class and, and a Muslim peasantry. Yeah. I think both Hindus and Muslims believed they had lost their sovereignty, but they believed that they had lost their sovereignty in completely different ways, and they had completely different ways to regain them. That, I think, is the issue. And if you look at the book, thinker after thinker, they're not concerned about 
the so-called other. They're really saying, strengthen Hindu society, find out who you are, organize, learn about yourselves, you know? And when it comes to constitutionality, there was always space for, you know... When you talk like this, Makaran, yeah. we must remember that today is the day also to say Jai Bheem. This is Bheem Rao Ambedkar's day is also a day to remember him. There are a lot of issues. You don't just sit there as a Brahmin and say, I renounce all this. It is also about including others. We have to be aware of that. And uh, I just pointed out, thinkers of all traditions, including the communists, were also of the higher caste. That is indeed true. No, absolutely. You know, the, so uh, but I just, I just, I just want to... But we have yeah. to, on our Republic Day, remember the importance of the of uh, Bhim Rao Ambedkar, and I will say that, and to sort of patronizingly say, I renounce uh, something. You are patronizing. I'm you are not. making all I'm these virtue-signaling gestures when your own class and your own background is as privileged as that of anybody else. Oh, so I think... It is. I no, think no, this I'm is trivializing the India. issue. The issues are no, far you're more important. to celebrate about Ambedkar. No, you no. can have Ambedkar, the, one of the principal architects of the constitution, not the soul, but one of the principal architects. Shabana, you can have Palak, you can have Papa. But I'm saying we're veering way off topic. I'm so sorry, we can discuss Ambedkar, no, but perhaps that's another he session he for also, another. He also recommended a transfer of population. No, I mean, we all agree, that, we all agree that Ambedkar is a complex uh, conversation and I don't think this is the right session for it. What I do want to come back to is what Sabha picked up on, which is that, and, and Makrand, I'd like to put this to you, that whether, and Shapunda, you as well, that whether we like it or not you know when one reads this book there are very whether you agree with them you don't agree with them they're very well articulated complex nuanced ideas encapsulated in the essays that you have uh, compiled for this book but somehow the current and this could be uh, this could be a manifestation of social media the dominance of hegemony of social media and news media but the articulation of a lot of these ideas the current articulation I'm not saying modern I'm saying contemporary articulation does seem a little bit uh, reductive in terms of it is often mired with sort of blind bigotry. It is often mired with a sort of sense of uh, victimhood that doesn't that seems a little bit misplaced. There is uh, there uh, there there is a uh, there is a characteristic unscientific temper, and that is perhaps also what leads to dismissing an entire tranche of thinking, an entire uh, in an entire tradition of thinking and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if both of you would like to say something about that and there is also a sort of insularity that has seeped into it and I'll, I'll even accuse you of it a little bit when you're saying that we should listen to what whether you agree or not there is there is a multiplicity of voices in Shaheen Bagh that cannot be reduced to one no, man I'm who not, said something I'm not in, dismissing it at all I'm only saying such calls have also been made Absolutely. from platforms yes. which yes. are being exalted as the, you know, hotbeds of a new Let's democracy. Let's move out of Shaheen no, but, but my I'm point saying, is, yeah, look, where question. are you looking? If you look only in social media, then it is bitter and reductive and counterproductive. But even but political, even no, political no, sloganeering. No, I, I, I disagree. See, no, sloganeering apart. These are not sloganeering examples. No, but look at the writing that's coming out. Just yesterday, I was at dinner with, uh, you know, Raj Kamal Jha. And look at the pages of the Indian Express. Look at the variety of opinions, you know, from the left to the right to the center. I think Indian, whatever, political or intellectual discourse is vibrant. And you have to, it depends on where you're looking. It's just the nature of social media and the way it fires your synapses that we are getting 
into this sort of reductionism. But if you look at the variety, you know, of writings that come out, you know, from Swarajo on one side to Frontline or Outlook on the other, and you put them all together, I don't think that the space of democracy and debate and discussion has shrunk. But Shabanda, you do yes, I was actually going to yeah. Small points in this. Number one, the, there is a marked continuity between earlier conversations on the loss of sovereignty and the way to recovery and today's debates on how does India rediscover itself, how does India find its own ethos, etc. One, I would say that it's part of the same conversation that is going on from about the late 19th century, uninterrupted, number one. The second point which you're talking about is that there is a sort of base conversation which is going on at the social media level. And that this is very disturbing, upsetting, and it, it's, it's crude, to put it mildly. If you look at the speeches which were delivered at the time of the national movement, the mobilization which took place, the imagery that was offered, and this is all very well documented, you'll find that on one hand there was Jawaharlal Nehru talking about the Spanish Civil War and the lovely ideas which emanated from there, and then you have another thing where the Brits were being pilloried as cow eaters, where they were being pilloried as Ravan, where the worst things were being said about them. And that was also part of the tradition. Now today, that second tradition has got incorporated into social media. Doesn't mean it didn't exist in the past. It exists, it has always, both streams have always existed and have and I've deliberately pointed to some of these in my book as saying that it's wrong to suggest that this Indian national movement was this wonderfully rarefied, intellectual, syncretic, everything. It had some of these, but it had also some of the rougher edges as well. And let us not forget that rougher edges are part of India's political conversation as well. I, ag I actually agree. I think... Uh, so again, I want, to, I want to get back to the issue, it's Republic Day. We have a certain uh, dispensation in power in the Republic. I think Chopin has made an invaluable contribution to understanding it. But since I have also covered the BJP and he knows that, uh, he, uh, he was my boss at that time for years and years and I have a book out on them. So I think currently if we, if we land up here, and I want to move beyond the Muslim paradigm, I think there are a couple of points where the BJP falters. Uh, Chopin, would, would, would it be okay to go in this direction? If you link it up I'm, with the I'm thought, the with the ideology. I'm giving you permission. Okay. Yeah. With the ideology is, is again to get back with uh, that, that, that doesn't, I think the BJP is struggling. They feel because the intellectual space has been occupied by people who disagree with them very strongly and who do think like Pratap has written there that some of them are cretins and some of them are. I don't include Chopin or present company in that. But some of them are cretinous. Let's face it. And uh, you know, many of and the... you will judge. No. Who you, is the cretin? You have... No, they are. No, I didn't no, the, say the, They would not... Okay, let me, let me say what is the standard of judgment. Should I put that before you? Yeah. Where... Forget about Indian universities. Where you would be considered someone of any standards by academia around the world beyond right-wing platforms. 
I think that can be a successful standard. You just show me. I mean, you have to wait for a certain government to get in. And I don't include Chopin because he's, he's been, I mean, to, to get certain kind of jobs for certain kind of people. That's true. Otherwise, they, they don't stand the scrutiny of good scholarship today across the world, but we are not going there. I think this is invaluable uh, contribution. Where the Bharatiya Janata Party is faltering a little bit is, first of all, Sorry, from no, this Sorry, no, I think it is an important point, and maybe, Shapanda, you can talk about it, uh, where, you know, you can, you can argue there's been a resurgence of some of these ideas, but both of you can perhaps talk about why there hasn't been a renaissance of a lot of these ideas. That's a very good point. Well, uh, well, firstly, l l let me compliment Saba for assuming the mantle of being the certifying engineer of intellectualism in, 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 in the country. Uh, Happy to oblige. Yeah, I have many you. more opinions I, to I offer know. you. You know, it's, it's this profound arrogance verging on condescension, which has really sometimes been a hallmark of certain conversations in, in this, which is why it disturbs, which is why it, it's this disturbing. One of the features of this book there, there are two features. One is that some of the ideas which you find expressed in an Indian context are ideas which are actually universal in some ways. Makran quoted Burke. If you look at, uh, if you look, look at someone like Roger Scruton who died last week, one of the most celebrated uh, Western philosophers, you'll find that the ideas are more or less what, what they define as community, how they talk about prejudice, how these are decencies, are issues which go on. Now, in India, let me give you a small example. The BJP is often accused of what is called food fascism. That means they want to impose their ideas of what to eat and what not to eat on the rest of the country. This is an accusation which has often been made in, the context, of, in the context of the beef debate. Yeah. If you look at India, you'll find two things. That it was the anti-cow slaughter movement which was responsible for getting members of the uh, what are called today called the other backward castes. It's a modern classification into the national movement, number one. Number two, that anti-cow slaughter was a very important part of the nationalist mobilization. And number three, that the entire gamut of anti-cow slaughter legislation which has been in existence in independent India, every single one of them has been enacted by Congress governments. He's right. And why right. is that? It shows that what constituted what is sensed by common sense, common decencies at one time has been hijacked by a particular form of people who no longer have that much of a role in society. And it is the detachment of the Congress from the India's natural common sense into something else, which is, can also explain its growing electoral irrelevance. I think the question I'll, of the I'll renaissance... Please answer this, okay. but I'll, I'll, I'll also add a question because we're very, very short of time. And uh, just very quickly, because I want to take one or two audience questions. Um, you know, let's move away from social media. But when... And I just want to ask you this as devil's advocate. When the prime minister makes speeches about uh, pink revolution or talks about unko kapro se pehchan lenge, etc. And, you know, you have, you have that on the other hand. And the other... 
on the other hand what you have is a sort of rss hegemony on the discourse of the indian right right which could be fortunate or unfortunate depending on where you you, you look at it from how do these two things do service or disservice to the variety of ideas that a book like this brings forth first of all i want to say that there's no such thing as the rss hegemony on right wing thought and secondly in public perception there is no, makran you can't you can't i mean that, no, no. that's the way we well well none of us here as i know yeah. is a member of the rss now the other thing i want to say is the rss itself is a very broad and diverse group of people who you know their views and the work they do is so vastly differentiated and differentiable that we can't lump them all together and homogenize them because that itself is the mark the hallmark of the stereotyping that the so called liberals or the leftists have done now the more important question is why aren't we having this great new renaissance there is an article here by in fact a review uh, interview of dilip padgaonkar and vs napol where he says yes we are witnessing a moment of awakening in india but what is required really is to get out of the competence deficit and competence phobia you know that has straddled us since independence earlier because of cronyism because a small group of people just dispensed favors throughout and now you know the bastions the fort has fallen but there's bewilderment you know there's no clear direction as to how to encourage real competence in all the fields of human endeavor so that we can get a truly uh, bharatiya kind of flourishing that hasn't happened and the spade work the groundwork for that is so important and for that institutional renewal institutional safeguards are important and i think our institutions are crumbling because of lack of direction you know and this is very serious because without these institutions how can you have the kind of renaissance that you're talking about Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Jaipur Bites is a Launchora production. Producers of Story Talking with Laksh, The Visionary Podcast, Jazz India Circuit Podcast, Poetry Darbar, and most recently, Play Me Life. All our shows are available on all major podcast apps. Once again, I'm your host Laksh Datta, and thank you for listening. Thank you.